The title of this sermon is Chosen in Love. But I want you to know I wrestled with what to call it because the sermon could also easily have been entitled Chosen by Love or Chosen to Love. There's only going to be nine verses that I'm going to read in just a little bit. And yet within those nine verses, the word love is used nine times. Agape love. Say that with me. Agape. Agape. Agape love. And what is agape love? Agape love is the kind of love that is interested in the good of the other person rather than their own selfish desires. Agape love never once tries to dominate or possess the other. One of my favorite definitions is agape love is a super abundant love. I just love that phraseology, a super abundant love. And oh, that everyone would know the super abundant love of a mother or a grandmother or a mother figure in their lives. Ann Eversfield, our uh, secretary, office manager, I was so excited to tell me something she learned this week. She said, did you know that Mother's Day started with the Methodist Church? Did anyone know that? I did know that. And so in our book of worship, I'm just going to pause real briefly to say this. This is what it says in our officially non-Methodist book of worship under Mother's Day. Observe the second Sunday in May. This day honors all mothers. It begins in its present form with a special service held in May 1907 at the Methodist Episcopal Church in Grafton, West Virginia. The service was organized by a Methodist laywoman, and her name was Anna Jarvis, to honor her mother who had died on May 9, 1905. By 1908, uh, Anna Jarvis was uh, advocating that all mothers be honored the second Sunday of May, and it just continued to build from there. Thank you to all of you who reached out to me yesterday to wish me birthday wishes. May 8th, we know that sometimes May 8th is Mother's Day. Well, and indeed, I am told that in 1968, you can do the math, yes, I'm 53, the same age Babe Ruth was when he died. I hope I look better than Babe Ruth did at the end of his life, that uh, I was brought home from the hospital on a Mother's Day. Now, Pastor Janet said, we're planning for our Pentecost service, and I see we have at least one red shirt on Pentecost Sunday. Please wear your best red that we can have. Uh, she said, you know, uh, the big three days in the church year are Easter and Christmas and Pentecost, but she's not fooling me. In my experience, the third biggest day for church attendance typically is indeed Mother's Day. What would you like us to do for you, Mom? come to church with me, come to church with me. And, and so I've always appreciated being able to speak on Mother's Day Sunday. But we know that for many churches and for many individuals, Mother's Day can be a difficult day. Not because we should be reluctant to, to, to give and celebrate the, the mothers who best exemplify faith, but it's difficult for many because many have an experience with mother that is not a positive one. We know this to be true. I think it is appropriate to say thank you to these mother figures in our lives who have exemplified the love of God, but it's also important that we pray for support for those who struggle with motherhood, either because of their history or their present. And so that's enough of Mother's Day. I hope you have wonderful celebrations. Call your mother if you're not with her. I'm going to call mine later this day. But this text, 
where we're going to have all these words of love. This text is a part of, a, of John's gospel that is known as the farewell discourses. In these chapters, Jesus is having to say goodbye to his inner circle. And I know some of you have had very difficult goodbyes in your lifetime. Maybe you're one who has had to send a son or a daughter or a mother or a father off to war. And when you say goodbye to them, you never know if you're going to see them again. I think one of the hardest goodbyes my wife ever gave is when we took our oldest girl off to college and we left her there, saying goodbye to that child who is leaving the nest. I know the pain of saying goodbye to a congregation that I have loved. One of the most powerful stories of goodbye, I got a call asking me to go out to a hospice and this woman went to the doctor, she wasn't feeling right, and they sent her right to hospice. She didn't even go home, right to hospice, and she still had her right mind. She had a friend who was a poet and an author, and that friend came and sat with her as she crafted letters for each and every one of her children and grandchildren to say goodbye to them. One of the most touching goodbyes I've ever experienced was the last time I saw my father who grabbed me and kissed me on the lips and told me he loved me. He never kissed me on the lips. He was dead three days later. But we can't take any goodbyes for granted. One Thanksgiving, we were with family up in the Twin Cities, and we were saying goodbye, and, and we said goodbye to my father-in-law, and he hugged us both. He was a very affectionate man. We never saw him again. You never know when your last goodbye is going to happen. So let's not take any opportunities for a well-meaning goodbye to take place. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He knows far too well what is about to happen to him. And so he is saying goodbye to his disciples. And so let's turn to John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commandments so that you may love one another. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so as I have been reading and walking with this text over the past week, there are really five words that just jump out of this text at me. And the words are abide, love, joy, commandment, and friends. And all of these are done in the sense of community. So let's look at this word abide. Abide. And it's, it's impossible for me to hear this word without thinking of the Big Lebowski, the dude abides. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that movie. But 
to abide. The arena, the love of Christ is the arena, the sphere, the location of Christian, Christian living. Abide in my love and love one another. And we know that abiding depends upon obeying. And obeying depends upon loving. Love and joy go hand in hand and make it easy for us to obey his will. We should love him, love his will, and love one another. Abide in love. That's what he said, abide in my love. Abide. And so I would contend that the very abiding that Jesus is speaking of as he is saying goodbye to his disciples, is, is what uh, facilitates productive change. We think to abide means just to be static, but no. To abide in Christ, to abide in the love of God, is to be able to change. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. And in order to discern the best possible outcome, we must abide in the love of Christ, which is anything but safe and unchanging. Now, friends, instead, abiding in this love requires us to be ever-moving, ever-expanding in our concept of who belongs and who should be loved and who is valued. Abide in that love, which brings us to the second word, which, of course, is love. Love is to be for another, to act for another, even sometimes at the cost of ourselves. A sacrificial love, a Christ-like love. And we know that we are chosen by God for love. We are sent out into the world to love one another. But yes, sometimes we live as if we were sent in the world to compete with the other. Or to dispute everyone else. Or to quarrel with one another. But no, the Christian is supposed to live a life of love that is to live in such a way that we show what is meant by loving the least, the last, the lost, to loving all of God's children, to extend ourselves and to extend our love to those who need it, those who need it the most. A scholar named David Cunningham said, one can have a few good friends and fewer lovers, but one can have agape love for all, a super abundant love. But, you know, he said, I command you to love. Can we be commanded to love? Love me. Doesn't work that way, does it? But that's what Jesus did. Jesus commanded love. It wasn't a one-time thing just for the disciples. It is for all of us, and it is an ongoing command to love. To love new every morning, this kind of command. Love, love one another. It isn't just love of your enemies kind of a thing. This is to love those around you, those close to you, those who need you, those in your care. This is the kind of love that mothers extend, or at least ought to, to all of their children and grandchildren. It's the kind of love that everyone, husband, father, teacher, pastor, friends need to do for one another. Love one another. And friends, I think if we really did experience this kind of true love, if we abide in this love, the result is going to be obvious. And the result's going to be our third word, joy, joy. Sometimes if I want to annoy my family, I'll run around the house singing a song I learned in, in Sunday school. Love is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart. Where? The castle of my heart. The castle of my heart. Joy is the flag flown high 
joy. That brings me joy just to sing that song. I don't think it's a loving act to those around me who have to hear it. But friends, to live in the world and yet also in the consistency of agape love is to know the love of which Jesus speaks. And this joy indeed has its very source in God. We are chosen for joy. But yes, sometimes life is hard, even for the Christian. But the goal is to travel in the way of joy. Scholar William Barclay said, There is always a joy in doing the right thing. The Christian is the man and or woman of joy, the laughing cavalier of Christ. A gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms, and nothing in all religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black clothes and long faces. Do people see the joy of the love of the Lord when they encounter you? It's true that as Christians, we are human and we all fall short. We are all sinners, but we are redeemed sinners. And therein lies the source of true joy. How can anyone fail to have joy when they walk the way of life with Jesus? When things are going well, we feel elated. But when hardships come, we tend to sink into depression. But true joy transcends the rolling waves of circumstance, says Barclay. Joy comes from a consistent, consistent relationship with Jesus Christ. And when our lives are truly intertwined with his, he will help us through adversity without sinking into to deep, deep lows. The joy of living with Christ daily will keep us level-headed no matter how high or no matter how low our circumstances. Which brings us to the word command, commandment. And there's two things about this commandment. First, John doesn't have Jesus giving many commands about moral or ethical living like the synoptics do, especially Matthew. For, for John, it is enough that we have the model of Jesus' life to do God's will in a singular command to love one another. But secondly, command and love don't naturally go together. As I already said, we can't command someone to love us. When Facebook, Facebook first came out, there was this great commercial of these uh, elderly women all sitting around, and she was hearing about her kids talking about their Facebook and about their wall and about friending people. And so she had literally all kinds of pictures taped up to her wall. And she had pictures of her friends up on her wall, and some friends said something snarky, and so she took down the picture and said, I unfriend you. And the lady says, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You can't command someone to love you. You can't command somebody else to love somebody else. But some scholars think that maybe we've kind of messed this up as we have translated it into English. You know, the NIV version, we read the NRSV. The NIV says, this is my command, love each other. But many scholars think it's, it's probably better to say that uh, I have given you these commands so that you might love one another, so that you are freed to live a life of love. Love. And then Jesus does the most remarkable thing. Jesus calls those disciples friends. Friends. Helios is the word that he uses. It's actually the word for love, so we really have love 12 times in nine verses. But it's brotherly love, the love between friends. It's a, a more literal translation is the loved ones. 
We are the loved ones. And so here is Jesus putting himself in the midst of the disciples as he faces arrest, as he faces torture and death. And we wonder, does he realize in the midst of this that he actually needs greater support, greater friendship, greater love, so that he may faithfully go all the way to the finish line? Aristotle said, a friend is another self. I love that. A friend is another self. Friends form each other in the moral life, taking on each other's circumstances, which is why we are so nervous when we send our young ones off to school, hoping that they will fall into the right circle of friends, because friends shape one another, both good and bad. Have you heard the phrase, we're known by the company that we keep? Are we familiar with that? In fact, we are very likely to become the company that we keep, which is why I think a faith community is, is so important. You know, I stand in awe as the senior pastor here, knowing that you minister to one another in ways that are far deeper, far greater than, than what I can do in ministering to you. Because you love one another, you shape one another and so, friends, we are called to become friends with God. And through this friendship, we hope to take on God's characteristics as our own and to love one another as God loves us. There's that classic old traditional hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and grief to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. And so, yes, Jesus is Christ, is Lord, is Master, he should call us servants. Instead, he calls his disciples, and he calls you and me friends. How comforting and reassuring it is to be chosen as Christ's friends. And the only thing Jesus asks of us is to obey because we love Jesus called us friends, the friends of God, and that is a tremendous offer. It means that no longer do we need to gaze longingly at God far off, way up in the sky. No, no, our friend is as close as the air we breathe. The air we breathe. Abide, love, joy, commandment, friends. And so I want to conclude by saying Jesus made the first choice to love and to die for us and to invite us into relationship with him forever. And so we are the ones that need to make the next choice to accept or reject this offer. Without his choice, we would have no choice whatsoever to make. Thanks be for God for the choice Jesus made the very central words of this passage are those which Jesus says to his disciples, that his disciples have not chosen him, but he chose them. It was not we who choose God, it's God who chooses us, and in his grace gives us this call for love and grace. Jesus chose us to be privileged members of the family of God. We can and we must take everything to our God in prayer but when we have done so, we must accept the answer that God in God's perfect wisdom and perfect love gives to us. But here's my promise. Here's my farewell of this sermon. The more we love God, the easier it will be to do that. Amen.